morning, church family. Would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? I'm Cam Thatcher, and uh, today's passage comes from John 9, verses 1 through 11. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happens that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. Word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, No, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes opened, they asked. He replied, The man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. I deliberately decided to use verses 1 through 11 for one reason and one reason only. I didn't want Cam to have to read 41 verses. <laughs> no, it's not about Cam, but that's a long reading. I say that to let you know that uh, I'm going to explore with you all 41 verses because this story is throughout the Gospel of John in chapter 9. The whole chapter is about this situation. And there's a lot of fascinating details that you didn't hear read this morning that we'll explore that expand the story. You know, it's very difficult, isn't it? We all know this, to stand in someone else's shoes, to really understand the experience of another. We do our best. We try. We frequently call it sympathy or apathy. But in reality, we can't get into the experience of others thoroughly unless we have exactly the same experience. And even then, we're different as it relates to the same experience. We experience things differently. I say that because most of us, not everyone here this morning, but most of us don't know what it's like to be blind. Some do, but most don't. Do you ever remember as a child wondering what it would be like to be blind? I do. I would close my eyes and try to make my way around the house. Kids do those sorts of things. I would try to imagine what it would be like not to be able to hear, especially when my mother was calling me. <laughs> but even plugging my ears didn't do the trick because I could still hear. This man in this story was completely blind, but he also was blind from birth. I don't know a lot of people who are blind from birth, but I know some. And I wonder, what do they see? They see something. 
I know from a relative that she said she actually sees colors. I'm, I'm not sure how, but she says she does. I know that for some of you, you don't know what it's like to not be able to see certain colors. I do. I'm colorblind. I mean, I know I'm wearing a blue shirt. I can see it. And I know that the suit is tan, and so are my shoes. I don't see in black and white. But every day, my wife helps me to get dressed. (laughs) Now, for somebody like Dan, it's just because he would look awful otherwise, right? It's a fashion thing. But for me, it really is a color thing because I can put on stuff that clashes. I don't see it. I honestly don't. And fall, as beautiful as it is, there are certain colors that I just don't see. It's, it's the deep red that my wife sees and she says, oh, look, do you see that? And my answer is no. Certain colors I can see better than others. Blindness is an amazing thing. It's even more amazing that people who are blind physically make their way through the world. On one occasion, Helen Keller, who probably is the most famous blind individual in the United States because of what she accomplished and wrote, she once said, the only thing worse than being blind is having no vision. Interesting. So today we speak about a story of an individual who was born blind. The man who was born blind is encountered by the disciples. Let me fill in the gap. They'd seen him before. Everybody in the town had seen him before. Because every day he was on the street begging because he had no other way to live. There was no social network that allowed him from the government or otherwise to have income. So they knew he was there, and they probably had passed by him a hundred times before. But on this day, they said to Jesus, look at him. He's blind. Why is he blind? Was it his sin or the sin of his parents that he was born blind? Now, that might seem like a very curious comment to us. His sin? He was born blind. Or the sin of his parents? Maybe we understand that one a little. But he's responsible for his own blindness? In order to understand it at all, we have to remember what the culture suggested. And the culture suggested that any sort of infirmity was essentially connected with sin for which someone was culpable. Not just the curse in a broad way, but infirmity was attached to particular sins, and it was someone's fault. A common rabbinic teaching went something like this. There is no death without sin. There is no suffering without iniquity. 
Not only was it widely held that sometimes parents could be cursed in their children because of what they had done, and the children would suffer, but there actually was a doctrine of the preexistence of the soul. That is, that some souls were good and others were not. And in this case, the disciples may have been thinking, though we don't know, was his soul bad before it entered the body? All of those things are part of trying to understand why the disciples even asked that question. Because it's not one that we likely would have asked. And Jesus responds very simply, neither. It wasn't his sin or the sin of his parents, but instead this happened so the work of God might be displayed. Uh, Can I pause a minute and ask the question that everyone else is asking? God did this? God made him blind from birth so that God could swoop in in the person of Jesus Christ and heal him and get glory for it? What about the poor man who had been blind for 40 years? If you're not thinking that now, you may have thought it in the past. So have I. The first thing I want to say is I do not want to diminish the sovereignty of God because I do not always understand God's sovereignty. On the other hand, I do want to suggest, as many New Testament scholars have, that there's actually another way of interpreting or even translating this passage. It is the location of what is often called the purpose clause. The reading that is most common is neither of these, but it happens so that the work of God might be displayed. The suggestion is if you move the purpose clause to a different place in the sentence, it could truly read this way. Neither this man nor his parents sin, comma, but so that the work of God might be displayed in his life, we must do the work of the one who sent me while it is still day. It was neither this man nor his parents. But here we stand, disciples. We're looking at the reality of a blind person. What's the point of this moment? The point of this moment is not to condemn, but to display the glory of God. And of course, you know what the solution was. The solution was that Jesus spit on the ground, took the spittle and the mud and placed it on the man's eyes. That too seems rather odd, but it was a very common form of uh, producing healing. Of course, it didn't always work, but it was a common practice. Um, Saliva was said to have a healing property, and before we get arrogant about it, because they were ancient people, all you have to do is look at animals to notice the healing property of saliva. They don't lick it just because it feels bad. They lick it in order for it to heal. And we sometimes do the same. There is some kind of healing property in saliva, but it's not enough uh, 
to heal the blindness of the eyes. Jesus put the spittle on his eyes and told him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. The pool of Siloam was a particular location where pure water was actually brought into the city. It was on the south end of Jerusalem. And uh, originally the pool of Siloam was sort of like a, a fountain that would fill up because of a spring that brought water to that area. During the years of Hezekiah, when it looked like Sennacherib was going to enter their place and attack them, Hezekiah came up with an ingenious plan, and he cut through the rock to bring that water underground through the rock to the place where the temple was for ceremonially clean water, and also to make sure that the water source could not be cut off. It was used for the Feast of Tabernacles, this water, and that's where we are in the book today. There's one other thing about this that John seems to be indicating when he reminds us that the pool was named Sent. And perhaps it's this. In the Gospel of John, at least 20 different times, John refers to Jesus as the one sent from the Father. So the solution is at hand. Jesus heals the man. But then the rest of it that we did not read starts an investigation. Now, before we uh, get really harsh with the uh, investigation, and there's reason to get harsh with it, um, I just want to remind us that healings in this culture were expected to be verified. As a matter of fact, there were laws in the Torah concerning the verification of healing. So it's really not that unusual that when this man who's been blind for 40 years and begging around the temple should be able to see and claim a miracle, people would say, how did this happen? Is it real? That's not unusual. But what is interesting is that it becomes clear right away that the religious leaders want to disprove the miracle. People uh, originally saw this man, and some of them said, this is the same man that's been blind for 40 years. And others said, no, it's not him. It looks like him. And the man said, quiet, essentially, it's me. And they said to him, this is part of the beginning of the investigation. They said, how in the world did this happen? And he said, Jesus did it. The man called Jesus. So now step two of the investigation happens. And this too is legitimate. They take him to the religious rulers to have the investigation continue. And they say to him, how did you become whole? How is it you can now see? And he says in the same fashion, Jesus did it. He tells them how, but he said Jesus did it. He put mud on my eyes, and now I can see. Immediately you see the turn in the road in the investigation. They say to him, this couldn't have happened. 
Why? Because this man named Jesus is a sinner. And why is he a sinner? Because he broke the Sabbath law against healing on the Sabbath. It couldn't have been him because he's a sinner. And then they say to him, what, what, what do you think? If I'm this man at this point, I'm feeling like a setup is coming. I'm feeling like you're asking me a question so you can belittle me or accuse me further. What do you think they say? And I would imagine in exasperation, not knowing what else to say, but the only thing that makes sense, he said, he's a prophet. The next stage of the investigation is uh, towards the parents. They still don't believe. And they say, is this your son? And was he born blind? And the parents say, yes, it's our son. And he was born blind. But we don't know how he can see. Well, tell us what you think. Tell us your story, in other words. And the parents say, he's an adult. Ask him. Why? The text tells us they were terrified of the religious leaders. They were afraid if they got in the middle of it, they would get expelled from the synagogue. And for good reason. Because at the end of the story, he was expelled. What did it mean to be expelled from the synagogue? In short, it meant everything. They were Jewish. They had a social network. They had family. They lived in a nation, though occupied by Rome, still followed Torah. And if they were to say what they may have believed, they could have been kicked out. There are certain accounts of people who were kicked out of the synagogue for one reason or another, and their property was seized. Everything they had was gone. I have a little sympathy, right? Why not say, ask him? He's an adult. They were protecting themselves. They didn't want the shame. They didn't want the isolation. They didn't want the financial ruin. So now the next part of the investigation happens, and they, they ask the man again. Really the same question. But this time, they twist it a little bit further. They say, we know, and you know, in effect, this man is a sinner, So tell us our story. Our story, in effect. Give glory to God. In other words, we heard you the first time, but tell it again our way. And that will give glory to God. This is a courageous individual. 
Perhaps his courage comes from the fact that he had experienced the miracle from Jesus. But now he is courageous. And he's getting a little snarky. I like this guy. I want to I picture it this way. Shoulders back and eyes like darts. He says to you, to them, I already told you the story, idiots. Why do you want me to tell it again? Of course, according to the text, we don't know that he got that shrill. I, I'm afraid I might have. Why do you want me to tell you the same story again? They said, what did he do to make your eyes become open? And he told them again. And then he said, he's really going after him now. He says, what? Do you want to become his disciple too? He's finished now. He's done. He's indicted. He's convicted. They respond, we're disciples of Moses and we know. We know the law and we know this man is a sinner. But we don't know his origin. In other words, he seems to be making claims with his miracles that we can't embrace because we don't know all the facts. Then the man responds this way. He says, this is amazing. This is amazing. We know that a sinner does not get the ear of God. Now, he didn't insert according to your law or your understanding. He just adopted it wholesale and maybe believed it himself. A sinner doesn't get the ear of God. God doesn't hear the prayer of a sinner. We would quibble with that, correct? But he's making a point. God doesn't hear the prayer of a sinner. But this man got the ear of God and the power of God, and he healed me. This is remarkable. In other words, how can you call him a sinner? There's more going on here. At this point, they're outraged. And they point the finger at him and say, you are the sinner. And you're out of the synagogue. In the temple area where they must have been, they, they threw him out. You, you know, there's actually two verdicts going on here. One's the verdict of the Pharisees. The second is the verdict of Jesus. Here's the verdict of Jesus. Jesus finds a man because he heard that he was thrown out of the synagogue. And when he finds him, he says to him straight up, do you believe in the Son of Man? And this man with 
eyes wide open and heart full of gratitude said, just tell me who he is and I'll believe. Now, again, you can't know for sure what it must have felt like, but just try. Just try to be him for a minute. He's honest. He knows he can see. He thinks this guy's a prophet. And Jesus says to him, you're looking at him. You're looking at the Son of Man. And this man, I would show you what he does, but this is a hard surface and I might not be able to get back up. (laughs) He falls face down in front of Jesus and he worships him. That's the end of the story. Except for one other thing. At least some of the Pharisees are observing this. Jesus says, um, in effect, those who pretend to have sight are blind. Well, the Pharisees are upset at this point. Not just with the man, but with Jesus. And he, they say to him, are, are you talking about us? Are you talking to me? And Jesus says, if you were blind, you would not be guilty. Because you claim to see, but don't believe, that's why you're guilty. Let me fill in the gaps. You've got all the knowledge. You've studied light years beyond this guy who never has been able to read. You understand the law and the prophets from the inside out. You've got eyes wide open to the truth, but you don't believe. And because you don't believe, you are blind. Not because you're blind, but because your eyes are wide open and still you do not believe. That, says Jesus, is the final verdict. So, um, allow me to say something about myself and about a lot of other people. You may know that I got a pocket full of degrees. Six of them to be exact. And all of them have something to do with theology and history and philosophy. And I and people like me, are in a very dangerous position. 
Because we can read and we can understand what we want to understand and we can rely on our intellect without accepting what we see by faith. I don't care what your intellectual status is, what degrees you have, you can be blind to the reality of God. Just like the Pharisees were. There's two kinds of spiritual blindness. One is lack of knowledge. I would... uh, suggest that that's none of our problem. A lack of knowledge is someone who just does not know and does not understand. And they're all over the world. But the other form of blindness is a refusal to believe when the presence of God is right in front of you. So take an internal check about where you are. It's a good exercise. Second thing I want to mention is that Jesus came to bring sight to the blind physically and spiritually. And to use the illustration of bringing sight to the blind physically to demonstrate blindness that is spiritual. I don't want to get on a, on a roll here, but just let me say one more thing about people who are intellectual. You've got to embrace both. You've got to bow your knee, and you have to have the humility to say that was a miracle which I cannot explain. And then, perhaps, you have opened the door to a spiritual miracle that opened your eyes by faith. They go together, my friends. So beware. The other thing I want to say about this passage is that Jesus uses the common practices of his day to produce miracles. It's not one or the other. It's not medicine and miracles. It's the activity of God in all of life. So if we're looking for miracles all the time that are sort of outside the natural realm, we are blind. God is working among us in the lives of other people. God's presence is right here. God is speaking to you, even in ways that seem utterly human. So open the eyes of faith to see God where he is. And don't discount him. Because the practice that you see seems to be common. Um, 
I've mentioned before, but I know physicians in this congregation who, before an operation, pause with their patients if the patient is amenable to it to pray. It's an acknowledgement of the dual role of healing. God and the surgeon's hands. They go together. Another thing I want to bring from this passage is that following Jesus produces persecution. There's no way around it. Some of you have actually experienced this persecution. Some of you have been disowned by friends because you follow Jesus. Some of you have been ostracized by your parents, your family, because you follow Jesus. In the most severe culture of this day, you would be counted to your father and your mother as dead if you follow Jesus. First of all, I want to acknowledge with a broken heart that some of you who I know well have faced that kind of persecution, that kind of disenfranchisement. And I pray for you. Second, I want to remind you that even if we don't think of being persecuted for Christ, let us never forget that there are people all over the world right now who are literally being persecuted for their faith. Not just ostracized, but actually physically abused and killed. If you want to know more about those stories, you can find out about those stories. They're real. The missions committee, we've even talked about highlighting Christians in persecution. If you want to know more, we can tell you. Why? So you can be enraged? No. So you can pray. So if you know folks around you that have gone through some kind of persecution, pray for them. If you know of folks that you do not know personally, Pray for them as well, because persecution is real. I want to say one final thing, (laughs) and it's this. Simple faith is all you need. You don't need degrees. You don't need smarts, nor do you need to understand it all. You just need to kneel in front of Jesus and accept him. And your faith might be limited, and your faith might be imperfect. Indeed it is. But we're not counting on perfect faith. We're counting on the faith in the one who is perfect. So wherever you are, have that faith and take the next step. That's all 
God wants from you. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful for these stories that the Synoptic Gospels call miracles. John, too, believes they're miracles, but he names them signs. Because every one of these miracles is a sign concerning you. And there's more for us to discover about you. We know we won't get it all figured out. We don't have a mind that can leap into the realm of the eternal. But we have a person who invites us to follow him so that our eyes can be opened by faith. So, Lord, for those of us who believe and have believed for a long time, may we not be arrogant. May we constantly be searching. And may we, in the words of the song that was sung just a little bit ago, say to you, Lord, open the eyes of my heart. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. In your name we pray. Amen.